Section 17 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 Charles and Clarendon, Part 3. So astute was the evasion that no one could have guessed that Charles was at this very time in secret communication with the Pope Alexander VII for a reconstitution of the English Church whereby while retaining her national and independent character she should nominally acknowledge the holy see as her head nevertheless before the words were well out of the king's mouth all men saw before them in tangible shape the enemy they dreaded most they had kept out the fox said william coventry were they now to let the wolf into the fold they did not know whether charles was himself a catholic but there was much going on to cause suspicion and in every place where he wrote dissent the english mind read pope of rome he did not remain long in ignorance of the feelings he had aroused within a week the commons answered his appeal by a remonstrance of the boldest character wherein they put before him clearly the conditions on which he might expect to enjoy his throne at all hazards popery was to be kept out of the kingdom by the maintenance of a state church charles was given to understand that supply would depend upon the immediate issue of a proclamation banishing all catholic priests and he yielded at once but he was anxious to keep the future treatment of the whole question as far as possible in his own hands and he evaded farther pressure by a prorogation by the time the houses reassembled protestant rather than catholic dissent again claimed their attention the act of uniformity had led to unauthorized religious meetings or conventicles against which the anglican clergy and the commons invade as hotbeds of schism and sedition charles had already learned to abandon resistance where attack was persistent and he was anxious for a farther supply he therefore gave his assent to the first conventicle act this iniquitous measure absolutely forbade under crushing penalties all meetings of more than four persons besides the household for religious services other than those allowed by the church upon the quakers the blow fell with special weight for the novelty of their doctrines caused them to be more suspected than any others pepys relates how he saw several being dragged through the streets and his only comment is they go like lambs without any resistance i would to god they would conform or be more wise and not be catched the appetite for persecution grew and before long an act still more cruel and drastic was carried in the commons without a division during the desolation of the plague many of the clergy had fled from london the deposed presbyterian ministers stepped into their pulpits without authorization and once more gathered eager congregations but the vigilance of the anglican church was not relaxed the old cry was raised of schism and rebellion at the october session at oxford in sixteen sixty five it was determined to prepare a shibboleth a test to distinguish among those who will be peaceable and give hopes of future conformity and who of malice and evil disposition remain obdurate 
and once more the pressing need of supplies compelled Charles to give way. The Five Mile Act laid down that no nonconformist minister was henceforth to teach in schools or to come within five miles of any city, corporate town, or parliamentary borough unless he had previously subscribed an oath denying the lawfulness of taking arms under any circumstances against the king or those commissioned by him and as in the act of uniformity had declared that he would not at any time endeavour any alteration of government in church or state the machinery of persecution was now complete the corporation and uniformity acts had eliminated presbyterianism from state and church by the conventicle and five mile acts parliament answered the claim of dissent to tolerable existence these concessions to the blind rancour of anglicanism which put charles's hope of favouring catholics every day farther out of sight formed then the price which he paid for parliamentary grants he would fain have carried out newcastle's advice to put money in his purse but the revenue settled upon him by parliament was quite inadequate to the various calls of government the payment of debts incurred abroad the satisfaction of royalist demands and the expenses of his more disreputable pleasures still less was it sufficient to enable him to gratify the desire fitfully entertained for many years of ruling as louis the fourteenth ruled of establishing an intelligent despotism founded upon armed force and the sympathy of dissent and independent of parliament he resolved therefore to secure his freedom from control by other means and this resolve is the explanation of his foreign policy throughout the reign his first application had been to the dutch and from them as the price of an alliance he had demanded two millions the renewal however of the navigation act of sixteen fifty one by which their carrying trade had in a great measure been destroyed formed an insuperable obstacle to union charles had plenty of alternatives for spain france and portugal were approaching him with rival offers in september sixteen sixty he let the spaniards understand that his active friendship was merely a question of price they offered him whatever money he might want but they coupled with this offer the inadmissible demand that jamaica and dunkirk should be restored to them france stepped into the vacant place a close understanding between the two crowns was a natural one from the dynastic and personal points of view for charles was more than half french by blood and had received much kindness from his cousin french statecraft pointed the way louis and mazarin had indeed ample reasons for desiring not merely to form an immediate compact but to secure a permanent influence at charles's court they hoped to do this by finding him a rich beautiful and clever wife they had her they thought to their hand hortense mancini then in the full pride of her rich southern beauty was still unmarried and she was now offered to charles with a dowry of four million francs but charles had not yet forgotten the refusal at fonterabia and he curtly remarked that when he married 
it would be to please himself. His choice, however, was limited. The available Protestant princesses were Germans, and they were all foggy. And so it came to pass that, after all, he married not to please himself, but to please Louis the Fourteenth. At the Peace of the Pyrenees, Louis had bound himself to give no aid to Portugal, then engaged in her war of independence with Spain, and he now saw the means of evading this engagement. The marriage of Charles with the Infanta Catherine was a signal victory for French influence. Portugal gave a magnificent dowry, Tangier and Bombay, freedom of commerce in Brazil and the East Indies, religious liberty for English subjects in all Portuguese territories, and half a million sterling. Charles, in return, bound himself, while avoiding any declaration of war upon Spain, to assist Portugal with a force of three thousand men and one thousand horses, and to put eight frigates at her disposal. To enable him to carry out these terms, Louis made him a present of eighty thousand pounds. A little later, against the earnest opposition of Clarendon, Dunkirk was sold to the French for two hundred thousand pounds. The marriage was entirely consonant with the Cromwellian policy of making us, in Dryden's magnificent phrase, freemen of the continent. For it secured vast commercial advantages and implied an active interest in continental politics. The sale of Dunkirk, on the other hand, however advisable as an economic measure, was as absolute a negation of that policy and spread dismay among the Protestant powers. For this Charles cared little. He looked to the money to provide himself with the army, which should some day make him independent of Parliament. In one respect, Louis had missed his aim. It soon became evident that he could not obtain, through the Queen, that personal control which he had hoped to secure over Charles. Not even the cleverest of women could have guided the descendant of Henry the Fourth if she were not possessed of physical charm. Catherine was neither well favoured nor clever. Even the portraits of the court painters can go no farther than to bear out Pepys's indulgent verdict, nothing charming, yet she hath a good modest innocent look. Probably not even Henry the Eighth, when he first saw Anne of Cleves, was more chagrined than Charles when he met his wife. The ungraceful dress and the grotesquely unbecoming method of wearing the hair which prevailed in Portugal added to her unattractiveness. He thought they had brought him a bat instead of a woman, but it was too late to find fault, and he must make the best he could of a bad matter. Writing privately to Clarendon of his first interview, the letter is a trifle too frank for complete insertion, he declared generously, that there was nothing in her face that can in the least shame one, brought up in a monastery, says Rearsby, her education was so different from his, that she had nothing visible about her capable to make the king forget his inclination to the Countess of Castlemaine. Here was the rub. On the one side the wife, ignorant and bigoted as only women of her country in training could be, awkward in manner, unversed in female arts or graces, of short, broad figure, her teeth wronging her mouth by sticking a little too far out, with nauseous distempers, 
and at the best with nothing absolutely displeasing in her face on the other side the mistress the finest woman of her age radiant in health and beauty with everything in face and form in self-abandonment and effrontery that could make her attractive to such as charles the lust of the eye incarnate two other marriages had already taken place in the king's family in sixteen fifty five at aix-la-chapelle clarendon's daughter anne hyde had been placed in the service of mary of orange as maid of honour and had remained with her to the restoration james fell in love with her when on a visit to his sister promised her marriage and seduced her at the restoration she returned to her father and finding herself with child appealed to james who married her at clarendon's residence on september third sixteen sixty in time to legitimate the boy who was born in october hitherto the story is sufficiently commonplace but then james appears to have behaved like a cur clarendon's statement that he denied the marriage in spite of the injured woman's asseverations and her pangs is indeed incredible for there were witnesses to the ceremony and one of them was ossory ormond's gallant son who was no more likely to give his name to a lie than was his father but that james listened to the groundless assertion of his blackguard friend charles barclay that his wife had had criminal relations with other men with barclay himself indeed is certain and it is equally certain that he sought on the strength of this to have the marriage declared invalid charles to his credit refused to countenance the fraud and was justified when barclay confessed his own infamy in spite of the passionate opposition of the queen mother who came over with her daughters to stop the union of her son with one of such modest birth the marriage which gave two queens to england was publicly owned before the end of the year another alliance for which the queen mother came to ask not charles's refusal but his sanction as head of his family was that of his sister henrietta with philip of orleans brother of louis the fourteenth born amid the din and the turmoil of a beleaguered city carried as a peasant's infant through hostile armies by her intrepid governess lady dalkeith a sweet and courteous child rearsby gives us a delightful picture of her beautiful among the fairest of the french court and clever as she was beautiful admired by poets dramatists soldiers and divines by her cousin louis most of all deeply wronged by a worthless husband sometimes indiscreet yet always pure it is not all this which gives to henrietta a special interest nor is it that she became the political confidant of louis and charles nor is it the pitiful tragedy of her death it is as has been said before that she was the only woman whom charles ever loved a single relic of her visit remains upon one of the hasty notes which passed across the council table i would willingly writes charles make a visit to my sister at tunbridge when can i best spare the time i suppose rejoins clarendon you will go with a light train i intend to take nothing but my night-bag you will not go without forty or fifty horse i count that part of my night-bag 
we must now deal somewhat more closely with charles himself and the court for which he was responsible and indeed it was a sorry sight although its colour and glitter of movement have attracted and will for ever attract the indulgent interest of those who do not know or do not care to realise the truth the keynote of the king's way of looking at life and kingship was struck on the day after his entry into london to the great edification of the righteous of pepys and the fleet especially he issued a proclamation against swearing and drinking four days later he was himself drinking to excess in the mulberry gardens till two in the morning and on june twenty eighth the earl of sandwich could not get to bed before five as he had been supping with the king charles understood the art of devolution there is ample testimony that he was an excellent if somewhat unconventional committee man but on the whole business was left to the earl of clarendon and the king as he was of an age and vigour for it followed his pleasures and if amongst those love prevailed with him more than others he was thus far excusable besides that his complexion led him to it the women seemed to be the aggressors and i have since heard the king say did sometimes offer themselves to his embraces the two dukes his brothers were no less lovers of the sex than himself in other words charles gave the signal for idleness and debauchery and by the middle of sixteen sixty one the lewdness and beggary of the court the drinking swearing and loose amours were too notorious for silence to much of newcastle's advice charles gave sedulous attention for gaming certain times your majesty will set down the twelfth night gaming tables were in full swing in sixteen sixty two evelyn tells us that according to custom his majesty who does not appear to have gambled farther than in this formal way opened the revels of that night by throwing the dice himself in the privy chamber where was a table set on purpose and lost his one hundred pounds the ladies also played very deep i came away when the duke of ormond had won about a thousand pounds at other tables both there and at the groom porters observing the wicked folly and monstrous excess of passion among some losers sorry i am that such a wretched custom as play to that excess should be countenanced in a court which ought to be an example of virtue to the rest of the kingdom on the last day of the year whitehall was crammed with fine ladies the prettiest at the court who were well able to appreciate the delicate humour of the king when he called for the first country dance which was says he cockolds all awry the old dance of england dancing with fiddlers all night almost at lady castlemaine's and suppers such as those reported to us by de comang with the most illustrious libertines of the kingdom at which took place scenes of license which would lose by transcription such occupations would stand for a good many dates in the royal diary End of section seventeen